Well, the second lesson this morning comes to us from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we have now completed our five solas of the Reformation with soli deo gloria right over here on my left and on your right. And you'll note as you walk around the sanctuary today that also in addition to this last and final installation that there have been some reflection pieces that have been put next to all of the installations. Uh, I know that some of you have wondered what do they mean or what were some of the inspirations behind these pieces. And so there's a little written paragraph that will help you um, do some more reflecting in and around that. And so we're going to have these as our companions um, in and through November 16th as we continue to think about what it means to be the church reformed and always reforming and always reforming. And so throughout the book of Philippians, which we are now coming to an end, we're on our last chapter in Philippians, and we'll be drawing to a close in this book as we move through November, Paul has been taking us on this journey from the past to the present, and then to the future, and then back to the present again. He moves kind of all over the place on sort of this cosmic timeline, He goes from his own present suffering in chapter 1 when he talks about the fact that he's writing from prison and he asks the Philippians to see themselves as partners in the gospel, not just as partners but actually citizens within the gospel and he uses that word as a verb 
that they are to citizen themselves within the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, he takes us to this radical cosmic future where he sees this world coming to a place where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? That great hymn that we read in Philippians 2 that gives us this, this, this picture of what it means to be a person of hope and a follower of Jesus Christ. And then, right after that, he takes us into chapter 3, where he pushes us to the future in chapter 2, but then chapter 3 backs us up again, and he warns of some of the difficulties that can happen within communities if you get stuck in the past. And he cautions this community of Philippi, and he says, don't get stuck. Don't get stuck in those places within the past that seem so familiar, because God is moving us forward. And then he ends with that really amazing metaphor, I press on towards the goal. Remember, I, I grip myself towards the goal because I have been gripped by the person of Jesus Christ. And now, in light of this whole journey from present to future to past, Paul, in chapter 4, is going to take the Philippians right back to the present again to the present, to the very real present, the very hard present, the very trying present that they see themselves in. Sometimes the present is actually the hardest place to be. We can look back and our mind can sometimes give us that wash of nostalgia as we look back and we can look forward with incredible hope, pressing on towards that goal. But the present, the present is different. The present is full with all of the complexities and feelings and emotions of life. The present can be very trying. It's in the present that we deal with our own disappointments and with our own pain. It's in the present that we deal with our own weaknesses and our own failed dreams. It's in the present that we wrestle with our own inescapable losses and the ones that we mourn. The present can sometimes be a place of deep pain and hardship. And in this last chapter, when Paul is writing to his little community at Philippi, he's writing to them in the midst of the present. This is one of the chapters where he uses some of the most imperative words that he uses within a short span of time. Imperative words are, are sort of dialed in towards the present. They talk about what the community needs to be doing now. He's using a whole string of those here in chapter 4 because he's bringing them back to the present, to where they are, to the emotions and the complexities that they're facing in their own real space. Well, perhaps all of this is fitting for all saints as well, because we too look to the past and we recognize that our friends, those who have gone before us, are now in the past. We hold on to a future with them in hope, and yet still we recognize that here we are in the now. 
the place that can be sometimes filled with pain and emptiness, the wondering of how we can even go on when we are working with inexplicable loss. And so here in Philippians 4, Paul takes us to the present, the now. He's not afraid to be there. He's not afraid to take this faith into the very deep present. And so as we see the reality of the present for the Philippians, just to take a quick step back, if you pull open your text and you take a look at what's going on there, one of the first things that we see that the Philippians are dealing with in the present is conflict. Conflict. In the now, there's conflict. And Paul names it immediately. And when he's talking about these two sisters, Eudea and Syntyche, and he asks for people to come alongside them, he's actually using the same word that we see that's turned into a noun for the Holy Spirit. The word for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. That's our word for the Holy Spirit. But he turns that word parakletos into a verb, and he says, you come alongside these women because they are struggling and they are not of the same mind. Come alongside Judea and come alongside Syntyche, he says, to be of one mind in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is recognizing that this is not going to happen in isolation. Sometimes we can, oh, just, it'll be fine. We'll just, it'll be fine. It will be. That's future, right? It will be fine. Maybe. Maybe, but what about the now? What about the now? So Paul dials us into the now, and he says, in the now, you come alongside Judea. You come alongside Syntyche, so that they can be in the one mind. Of Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen in isolation. It's not going to happen because Paul said so. It's going to happen because there are people who are choosing to labor alongside these two women. That's how they are going to be of the same mind. Unless the folks in this community at Philippi start to think that that is work that is beneath them, that's not for me. I don't do that community work. Paul says this, he says, these two women have been my co-laborers. Now he changes the metaphor. He uses athletos. He says, these are the women who have come alongside me. They are my workers. They are my athletes. It goes between metaphors to talk about what it is that they're doing. And he says, so I want you to come alongside them so that they can be of the same mind. You see, even in the first century, there was disagreement in communities. Even in the first century, not everybody had it all together. The first century church had all sorts of challenges. They had all sorts of mishaps within their communities. If we walked into a first century church, we might not even recognize it. And we don't know why these two women had such firm disagreement, but we do know that it was a big enough disagreement for Paul to be able to talk about it here in his letter. And in talking about it, he recognizes that conflict is part of community. 
It needs to be recognized. And perhaps the solution only exists in the constant coming alongside of those who are struggling, of those who cannot yet see eye to eye, of those who have had different experiences and different stories and different ways of seeing the world, and so they cannot come to the same place. They need the community of co-laborers to surround them so that they can arrive at the same mind in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, let us not forget this holy work of the present. Laboring alongside those who are in disagreement, this is part of the now. It's part of the now of where we live, in our time and space, in this exact moment. And the second thing that Paul talks about when he dials into the present is that he says the present is a place where we are to labor along with God. The present is a place where we are to labor along with God. The operative sentence, as I interpret it in that next section of Philippians, where he says rejoice, and again I say rejoice, let your gentleness be made known to all, the Lord is near. The operative sentence, as I see it, is this, that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. Angus is the word in Greek. It comes from the root for the hand. The Lord is at the hand. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Connected. Embodied. Just a few feet away from the face. The Lord is near. Paul wants this community to know that is struggling in the present that they are not alone. They are not laboring together for an agenda, he says. They are not laboring together for a predetermined outcome. They are laboring because they are laboring alongside of God. That's the only reason the Lord is near. That's where their labor is. And that is what allows Paul to then give them this imperative that says rejoice. You know, it's very hard to rejoice when you are in a place of suffering. It's very hard to rejoice when you are in a place of pain. But when you are in a place when you know that the Lord is near, rejoicing can grow out of that. Rejoicing can come from a space where you recognize that you are not alone. That in fact, in the labor, there is the very Spirit of God. What a gift. What an honor that we get to co-labor alongside of God for God's work. That then it becomes a work of rejoicing, a work of gentleness, a work of prayer, a work of peace, a work of the heart and the mind, but make no mistake about it, all of these are a work. All of these are an effort. All of these are a labor. 
but it becomes this work of gentleness and prayer and rejoicing because of the operative sentence that the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. You see, friends, I don't want us to miss the irony that perhaps our culture falls into this trap and we tend to fall into it too, that we notice that God is closest when magical things happen. When things that we can't explain happen, then, there, that's where we say that God is. And yes, this could be true. Miracles happen. I have personally experienced them. But here in the midst of this gritty, painful present, Paul offers another word for this community that they need to hear, and that is that God is near in the present work of the community in the labor force of the community. That is where God is near. If there's one thing that I would like for you and for me to take into our weeks, this week and beyond, it is just this. That God is near in the work. That God is near in the work even in the conflict, that God is near in the conflict because that's part of the work. It's part of the work. Especially in the laboring, God is near. Let us pray. Gracious and loving and holy God, we thank you that you are near. And there are times when we need to be reminded of that so desperately. So this week we ask that you would draw that verse right close to us, that it would be at hand. That we would know that in the work that you are near. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand.